Well, let me add my greeting to what Mike has already said this morning. My name's Eric, and I get to be one of the pastors down here at the downtown campus. And it's always fun for me to start a brand new sermon series, which we are doing this morning. Particularly when I feel very strongly that it's one of those books of Scripture, one of those narratives in the Bible that though it be ancient, it is speaking to and addressing a very real and prevalent and present problem in our day and age. That's the way it works. More than we read our Bibles, our Bibles read us. I don't know if you've given time to really think through what's going on in your world, what's going on in the world, and everything in between. But if you pay attention at all, what you're starting to pick up on probably more and more is this increase in static. This, what I would call a soul static. People are uneasy, they're edgy, they're, fr they're frustrated, they're, they're fed up. They're, they're angry about what's happening over there with them. There's this sort of cultural seismic shift that is a bit unprecedented quite candidly. And that's because we are going through right now in the start of the 21st century a pretty foundational and fundamental societal shift. And, and you, as a church attender, as a person who claims to love Jesus, to, who reads their Bible, who associates with other believers, you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And our Bibles are equipping us to do precisely that. For thousands of years, there has been an anthropological assumption. Let me explain. There's been an understanding by default among all populations that people are, and I quote, jacked up. That we are prone to wander, prone to error, prone to do things that hurt us, that hurt our community, that hurt our clan, our tribe, that hurt the world in which we live. Everyone sort of understood that for thousands of years. In fact, St. Augustine called it the bondage of the will. Our chooser, our thinker, our mind tilts to stern. It's a little bit askew. It's just off. It makes bad decisions normatively. Luther some 1,100 years later, writes the definitive uh, book on this called The Bondage of the Will. And it's very clear that we as a species do not have the ability to define or justify ourselves. Something greater from the outside must come in and do that for us. A definitive watershed moment from the 16th century that was true, that was widely adopted until about the middle to the end of the 20th century. There became a groundswell of fundamental shift in which people said, no, my will is not bound. I'm actually a good person inherently. And in fact, everybody is actually a good person. All we need to do is work really hard together to build a slightly better context or environment. And if we get just a little bit better environment, if we obliterate all of the bad systems... We won't have any more problems. And so what you're beginning to see in a polarizing and galvanizing world stage is those two conflicting, competing, colliding value systems. Those that say, no, we need escape, we need rescue from the outside, we need someone alien to define, justify, and release me from my own self and sin. And there's an entirely different value system that says, no, we're good, just follow your heart. Perhaps you've heard that expression. Just follow your heart. What, what does that mean? It means you don't need anything else or anybody else. You just need a little bit of a boost, and you get to define and justify yourself. Just follow your heart. That all sounds great and very Disney-fied, unless, of course, you happen to be talking to Adolf Hitler. And when Hitler follows his heart, well, millions and millions of people die. It sounds great to follow your heart unless you happen to be Paul Pot. And then millions and millions of people die. So clearly there are exceptions, and we as Christians have to understand that's the world in which we live. So what are we supposed to do about that? How are we supposed to exist in a context in which the dividing line between those two value constructs is actually widening and polarizing and galvanizing? Well, there's nothing really new under the sun, of course. These problems have been going on from the very beginning of time. They've been with us since Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. But the reality is, it's introduced into the cosmos even before Adam and Eve. It goes way back even further, before material creation. There was an angel, a cherub, we're told, an angel named Lucifer. And he decides he no longer wants God to be God. 
He decides he wants to be the center of his own universe, the center of his own being, and so he grasps. He utters the five I will statements in Isaiah 14. I will ascend, I will have, I will be, I will do, I will be like God most high. And that sets off these reverberating concentric circles of humanity following in that path since the fall of Genesis 3, removing God from the center and trying to place anything else we can in the center of our lives. Well, as it turns out, it never works out, not one time ever. The center of our lives was designed for one thing and one thing alone. And as it turns out, it's a person. And this person's actually powerful, but this person's also very good. If anything else occupies that space, our life will unravel. Again, St. Augustine put it this way, God has made us for himself and we are restless until we find ourselves in him. And so the big idea for this morning, as we kick off our new sermon series, the big idea goes very simply and succinctly like this. Sin is when God is not central. Sin is when God is not central. Now, you and I sitting in church might hear that and assume, I'm talking about all those other people out there who, who, who see the world differently, who see the world wrongly, who see the world incorrectly or at least incompletely. Oh, but for that comes the little book of Jonah. The little book of Jonah is actually written for people like me and people like you. It's quite interesting Jonah is one of those little books that is so dominated by one massive, marvelous, miraculous event that takes place. Perhaps you've heard of it. Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish. Yeah. The rest of the book actually often gets neglected. But there's actually a massive and meaningful and marvelous message in this book. It has everything to do with a God who is gracious, a prophet who is graceless, and a relentless mission to reach the nations with the love of God. And so for these four, maybe five weeks, our series theme for the book of Jonah goes like this, God's relentless grace. God's relentless grace. We need to hear this. We need to see this. We need to believe this. We need to be this. Hopefully you'll hear that in our gospel affirmation that we do at the beginning of every worship service. There is sin, but there is a Savior. And those of us who have been saved from our sin are now sent to speak of it. Now then, we're in the book of Jonah. I need to give a little bit of background because without context, there is no meaning. I want you to understand that. Apart from context, there is no meaning. We don't get to just scoop individual verses out of our Bibles and use them to hit people about the head, neck, and face to get our point across. That's not using the Word of God. There is a context for the book of Jonah, and we have to get that. Jonah is considered one of the minor prophets, not because he's not important, but because he just has less material than the four major prophets. It's always hard for me to find Jonah. I have to do the song that I was taught by my seventh grade Sunday school teacher, Hosea Joel, Amos Obadiah, Jonah. Oh, there he is. So if you can't find Jonah, you can cheat. Use your table of contents or use your phone or just start singing the song. Go ahead, I'll wait. Hosea Joel, Amos Obadiah, Jonah. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Go ahead and find yourself some Jonah. It's the only one of the prophetic books that is entirely narrative. You get a little bit of narrative in Isaiah. You get a little bit of narrative in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and some more in Daniel. But all of Jonah is narrative. You get one tiny half-sentence oracle, some half-sentence prophetic utterance from God near the end of the book. It's very, very brief in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah was from the tribal lands of Zebulun, a little town called Gath Heifer. And I thought my hometown of Borger sounded nasty. Gath Heifer sounds horrible. Now, Zebulun is in the northwestern part of the country. Uh, it borders the, the lands of Galilee. It's to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's really, really interesting. Because I want to remind you, Jonah is an Old Testament prophet book in the Old Testament that's in the Jewish scriptures called the Old Testament, and it was in the Old Testament. Are you, are you tracking with me on that? It's really fascinating because about mm, 750 years after Jonah, there's a gathering of religious leadership in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. That's the Senate. That's the leaders of Israel. And they're trying to figure out a way to destroy this Jesus. 
Jesus is not there during one of these conversations. And so a man named Nicodemus, who's beginning to understand that this Jesus is way more than some prophet, says, hey, in the Sanhedrin, we can't bring him to trial and decide to put him to death unless he is present. And the Sanhedrin high priest shouts him down. says, what are you, from Galilee too? That's kind of like saying, what are you, from southern Mississippi, boy? It's a, it's a slam. Like, are you a hick from the sticks? And then he goes on to say, you should know, no prophet can come from Galilee. In other words, whatever you're saying, we're not listening to in case you're from Galilee. No prophet can come from Galilee. Well, he was wrong. Or worse, he knew well about Jonah and was lying. Jonah is a prophet, and he is absolutely from Galilee. He's a real historical figure. 2 Kings chapter 14, that spot in your Bible that's really clean and the pages aren't wrinkled at all, you know, right there in 2 Kings 14. 2 Kings 14 says that Jonah was an actual prophet, and he ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he ministered to the king named Jeroboam II. And as my dad would say, Jeroboam II was a bad motor scooter. He was a really bad king. All of the kings of the northern tribes of Israel, every single one of them was considered evil in the eyes of God. A few of the ones in the south were okay. All the ones in the north were bad. Jeroboam II was a really, really bad guy. He was during that reign. So this is around 760 B.C. Now, the name Jonah, a fairly common name even in our day and age, Jonah means dove. And as we're going to come to find out, the book of Jonah is a narrative. It's prophetic, all right, but not in the way of an oracle or God pronouncing a whole lot of edicts. It is prophetic in that it is a story that is demonstrating a truth. We call this a type sometimes in biblical literature. It is a story that is demonstrating, and the story that is being demonstrated is really all through Jonah as the agency of explanation. Let me explain. Jonah, in the story of Jonah, is representative of the nation of Israel. It's only a four-chapter book, but when you hear and read what's going on with Jonah, you have to think this is being written to demonstrate and to portray, to personify, to embody, to anthropomorphize Israel. This is about the nation of Israel, who they were, what they were doing, how they were supposed to have conducted themselves in the world, and how they failed. Digging deep into this little four-chapter book, what you come to find out is it's really a microcosm. You can pretty much get the entire master theme, the meta-narrative of all of your Bible just by reading Jonah. It's all in there. There is God, there is people, there is sin, and so there is judgment. But there's a Savior. That's the sweeping thrust of your Bible. And we see all of it here in the little book of Jonah. Even though it's got some miraculous events in it, I contend that it's historically accurate and that this actually happened, as hard as it might be for us to believe that in our modern sensibilities in the 21st century. But it doesn't matter what I think. More importantly, Jesus thought that Jonah was an actual person and that the events described actually happened. Jesus actually, in his earthly ministry and his teaching, he quotes four different Old Testament prophets. He quotes Elijah, he quotes Elisha, he quotes Isaiah, and he references Jonah. Now that's interesting, and very specifically, I might add, there's one particular mention of Jonah that we need to look at so that we can understand a little bit more about the book of Jonah itself. This mention of Jonah appears in the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to look at Matthew chapter 12. So bear with me for just a moment. Quick little side trip, again, to provide some context. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. We are studying the book of Jonah, but to do that, we have to understand the significance and the centrality of the book of Jonah, at least according to Jesus. What's going on in the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew is trying to convince the church that comes decades after the ascension of Christ. The church comes in, and Matthew's trying to explain to them, Church, don't you see? Israel's Messiah has come. He's the rightful king of Israel. He is Israel's Messiah, but he is available and accessible to you Gentiles because God loves the nations. His grace is relentless. This is Matthew, a Jew, trying to prove and establish and order his content to demonstrate Messiah has come from Israel, for Israel, but they rejected. But you have access and availability to Israel's king. And so this is how Matthew lays out his content. Well, 
by the time we get to chapter 12, the tension is mounting. There is an increased amount of frustration where these Pharisees and scribes who are the walking around embodiment of self-righteousness keep colliding with Jesus, who actually is righteous. They're trying to be righteous. He actually is righteous. So they're following him around. Jesus keeps giving signs, demonstrating his power, and they don't like it because they're incapable of doing the same kinds of things. Finally, in chapter 12, beginning in verse 38, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. If you read back just a few paragraphs, you see they've been seeing signs from him. So the idea is, we want to see one more really good. I mean, you got any fireworks in there, Gandalf? Come on, impress us. The Son of Man, the Son of God, will not be moved to parlor tricks. This little paragraph has vexed New Testament students for millennia, but it doesn't need to if we understand the overarching context. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus seems to think that Jonah was an actual historical human. For just as Jonah was, in the, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, was it a fish or was it a whale? I don't know. Some have said, well, physiologically, it would have had to have been a mammal or the gastric. Look, 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 look. God became flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, he ascended to heaven on high, and he will come again. If you've got a hard time believing that Jonah was in the belly of a fish, that whole Jesus thing is going to really wrinkle you, okay? I don't know if it was a fish. I don't know if it was a whale. The Hebrew is not clear. The, fish, the word for fish in Hebrew is dag. The, the, the word in Greek is ketu. It just means a giant sea beast. So let's just say it was a whale shark. That way we kind of kill two birds with one. Whale sharks are big. They're kind of cool, right? Let's just say it was a whale shark. We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us specifically. But just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, just to remind you, I do this every time around Good Friday and Easter. Three days does not mean 72 hours. It doesn't mean three entire sets of 24-hour periods. It's a day, and then any piece of the day on the front or the back end constitutes a day. So it's three days and nights in the belly of the belly. In the belly of the fish, in the same way, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus just invokes the Daniel 7 title for Messiah. Messiah's going to die. He's going to go down, 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 just like Jonah did. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they represented the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And I love that, jo that Jesus says that something greater than Jonah is here. What he means is there's a kingdom greater than Jonah's here. How will you respond? The people, those nations, those pagans, those Gentiles, those idolaters, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and he wasn't that good. Something greater than Jonah is here. How will you respond? And the text goes on to say, after this, they went out seeking to find ways to destroy him. Now, that sermon went south in a hurry. I've had some bad ones. No one's ever walked out and made plans to kill me that I know of. Why are they so angry? Because he's called them an adulterous generation, and he's basically connected them back to the narrative of Jonah, which they would have known very, very well. So, with all of that said, we need to understand what's going on in the book of Jonah. So, if you've got your Bibles now, turn back to the book of Jonah, and we're going to walk through this very briefly. I'm going to read the first chapter. We'll walk back, unpack, and then we'll see if we can apply it. Jonah, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to read straight through the whole thing. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But, uh-oh, anytime God gives a directive and the next word is but, buckle up. But, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But 
the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! You can hear the thud of the foot in the ribs. Get up! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought, or your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore... (laughs) They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, probably should be a part of chapter 2. That's okay. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. What's God got for us in this little book? Well, in ancient Israel, during the time of Jonah, you have to remember, this is the 8th century B.C. Let's call it about 760 B.C. Two tribes in the south, ten tribes in the north. The king was supposed to rule and resemble and reflect righteousness in the realm. You may remember back in Deuteronomy, the king, when they got one, and God said, you're not going to like your king, you're not going to want to do this, but when you get one, make sure that the king writes down in his own hand the entirety of Torah, the whole Pentateuch, that he writes it down. I need your king to know the word because I am your king and I am the word. How do they do? We have no record that anyone ever does it, ever. Maybe David, we don't know. The king was supposed to resemble and reflect righteousness in the realm. And when that failed, which was every time, the priests were supposed to mediate on behalf of the people to somehow make a way for people to have right standing and right relationship with their God. And when that failed, God would send a prophet to preach. Now, during the days of Amos and Hosea, who were contemporary with Jonah, says that even the prophets were corrupt. That's when you know things are really, really bad. Jonah had actually had a pretty good track record in his prophetic career. Again, way back in 2 Kings 14, we're told that God sends him to Jeroboam II. And it's a message of prosperity. He goes to Jeroboam II, who was a really bad guy, who was an idolater, who set up high places, who was practicing child sacrifice. He's a horrible human. He moves the center of worship in the northern kingdom to Samaria and also way up in the north, almost to what is today called Lebanon. And he sets up another temple way up there. He's a bad dude. And yet, and yet, God's grace is relentless. He sends Jonah to Jeroboam II and says, Hey, just because God is who God is, He's going to expand your borders nationally again. The Assyrians have been harassing them and just wearing them out. But God's going to expand your borders again that you have not seen since the days of Solomon. And God does it in spite of Jeroboam being a bad dude, in spite of the Assyrians being just to the northeast. God does it. And so Jonah's kind of a bit of a national hero. It's Jonah, one, the rest of the world, zero. He's kind of a big deal. And he loves Israel. He loves his homeland. He loves the fact that that's all happened. He was a patriot. He had zero resistance when God said, go tell the king that his land's going to increase. Jonah was like, I'm totally in for that message. Send me. 
But now, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, English sort of softens it. It, it. it would really go like this. Came the word of the Lord to Jonah. Davar Yahweh. This is a formal instruction. It is a decree from the throne room of God himself to his man to deliver a message. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. It's a formal oracle that he's supposed to do very specific. Go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Nineveh is today modern-day Mosul, Iraq. It's still not a friendly place today. It's on the eastern banks of the Tigris River. It's an enormous city. We find out in chapter 3 and chapter 4, it would take three days to walk across the city. There are 120,000 children, not to mention the rest of the population. Nineveh is huge. Not only that, it is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the most violent, brutal, and atrocious empire probably in antiquity. I won't go into it because we have families and children around that are going to hear this. Uh, the torture and the sacrifice they performed were absolutely heinous and inhumane. It was disgusting. And God tells Jonah, I want you to go to this great city. Now, he's not saying, it's such a great city. I mean, they've got parks. They've got coffee bars in every corner. They have these little sidewalk cafes with umbrellas. It's just fresh. No, he's saying it's so great, it's so huge, it's so massive, it's so mighty. There had been some infighting in the Assyrian Empire, and so a lot of the harassment from them to the northern kingdoms had stopped. So during that little bit of a lull, why had there been a stoppage in harassment from Assyria? Well, God apparently had sent two separate famines that really weakened the empire, caused some infighting at the leadership level, and then a complete and total solar eclipse happened in July 15th, 765 B.C., and so the people were kind of freaked out thinking that God might be mad at them. It just so happened. And so God says, Jonah, get up. Go to Nineveh. Now, I have to tell you, this would be kind of like going to a Polish Jew in Warsaw, Poland in 1944 and saying, go to Berlin and preach to the Nazis. You would say, mm-hmm. Not me. You got the wrong one, Jack. That would be a hard instruction to hear. Nineveh was the epicenter of all things not Jewish. It was evil. Nineveh was actually started by a guy named Nimrod. Now, that's a tip-off. When your founding father, your city origin is a dude named Nimrod, things are probably going to go bad. Way back in Genesis 10, he's one of the founders of the city of Nineveh. Nimrod's the same dude that was trying to build the Tower of Babel to shake his fist at God. That's another tip-off. This is Nineveh. God calls Jonah to go and preach judgment against Nineveh because their evil has ripened. It is stacked up and mounted, and God has finally got no other choice but to respond. Again, the violence of the Ninevites, the Assyrians, nothing stirs the heart of God to action more than human violence against humans. Now, I want to remind you, Jonah's track record, He's been successful as he's told Jeroboam, a bad dude, God's going to bless you. And now God's telling Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them I'm going to judge them and destroy them. Now you would think that right there and then Jonah would say, "Woohoo! I'm already on my way, Lord. Just let me get there in time to see you pour down all the fire and the brimstone and the hot lava on them. You know what, God? In fact, it's been a while since you did the whole 10 plague thing. Let's cook them down. Let's go. Frogs, pestilence, bloody water. Come on, God. That's what you would think Noah would say. I mean, what? he knows who God is. He knows what God is capable of. Hmm. Nope. Not what he does. The most tragic verse and the most tragic word in the narrative Right there in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee. He's supposed to go east, northeast. He literally stands up and goes west, southwest. The exact opposite direction of where he's supposed to go. Nineveh is 550 miles away. It would have taken him a month to walk there. Instead, he goes south, southwest, to Joppa. There's only one port in those days where you could actually sail a ship to the coast of Israel. Uh, there was no Caesarea yet where you couldn't sail like when Peter sails. There's only one place to go, and it's Joppa. So he goes down, west-southwest to Joppa, to the coast of Israel, where he can board a ship, and he's going to try to sail to Tarshish. Now, that may not mean much to you. Tarshish is almost certainly 
an old Phoenician settlement on the southwestern coast of Spain. It's around Gibraltar on the west coast of Spain in the Atlantic Ocean. God says, go east, northeast, about 550 miles. Jonah says, no, I think I'll sail 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. I want no part of this. The horrible part of the verse is where it says that Jonah tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. Literally, he tries to flee from Yahweh's face. He flees from the face of God. That's the central issue in the entire chapter. He's not just running away. He's quitting. He is re- he's resigning. He is rejecting God. He's just committed treason in a sense. He's been serving a sovereign God, and he's just made a choice to put himself in complete command of his soul. This is sin. He's choosing to build his life on something other than God. His own ideas, his own notions, his own preferences. Remember, sin is when God is not central. Sin is when God is not central. Several weeks ago, I'm sure you've slept since then, so I'll remind you, we preached through and walked through Psalm 139, where David talks about God's omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. There is nothing not in God's presence. In fact, David says, if I ride the wings of the dawn, what is he saying? As light takes off across the the, the known world at the speed of light, if I was to do that, you would already be when I get to my destination, i.e., as it takes off across the Mediterranean, you're already going to be there. Jonah decides, I'm going to hide my face from God's face, and I'm going in the opposite direction. The text does not tell us this, of course, but that's why. Psalm 139, if I ride the wings of the dawn, you will be there. I have this sort of sneaky suspicion, again, the text does not say this, that as Jonah boards the boat in Joppa, that the name of the boat is the Dawn Treader from C.S. Lewis, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He's about to find out there's nowhere you can go where God is not present. So, question, why did Jonah react the way he did? Was it too difficult I mean, you could understand Jonah was overwhelmed at the assignment. I mean, it's a long way, for starters. And then it's a huge place. It had two walls. The inner wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. This is a major, massive city. And then I mentioned it's pagan and violent and evil. You you can understand if he gets there and he goes, I don't speak the language. They don't speak mine. How do I even get to the king's quarters? Do I just stand next to the 7-Eleven and munch a burrito and start telling people things? No, we're not even getting a word from Jonah that it was too difficult. He never mentions any of that. He just leaves. Okay? Maybe it was too dangerous. Certainly Jonah was afraid of going to that people who were known to fillet their their enemies and kill their their opponents in really horrible, horrible ways. The atrocities that they did, their own citizens and sacrifice, not to mention their enemies. No. He makes no mention of being afraid of them at all. So why didn't he go? It wasn't too difficult. It wasn't too dangerous. This is why Jonah is representative of the nation of Israel itself. He was too disdainful. Not too difficult, not too dangerous. He was too disdainful. We'll find out in a few chapters that Jonah actually did have a right view of God. He knows that God is merciful and full of loving kindness. We talked about that last week in Psalm 36. He knew that if God wanted to be merciful to those people, that God would protect his messenger and that it wouldn't be too difficult or dangerous. Jonah simply did not want those people to receive grace. I'm going to pause for effect. Are there any people, populations, groups, individuals, those people that you really just do not want God to bless? I do. I do. Left to my own flesh and the musings of my mind, there are certain populations, certain groups, perhaps even an individual or three, that I just assume God not love them. If I'm the only one, pretty lonely up here, but I'm betting I'm not. Israel was to have been the light to the world 
the law, the righteousness, the moral code of heaven was to be lived out as a nation so that the entire world could see. How'd they do? They closed up shop and they said, we hate those dirty people. What's really fascinating, this book is called Jonah because he invariably wrote it, or at least had it dictated. He's not the main character. In fact, he's the bad guy. God's the main character. He's the great one. Are are you catching this? The professional prophet, the the most religious guy in the nation, the preacher, he's the bad guy. Because there are people that he disdains. That's why the book of Jonah is so much more than about a fish and an awkward three-night holiday. Jonah's patriotism and his nationalism are so strongly ingrained into his soul that he's willing to defy God so that the people he doesn't like will just get God's wrath and then cease to exist. And that can happen to us. And so Jonah says, no, not that. I'll pronounce judgment. I'll, exp- I'll pronounce blessing on my own people. I'm not going to those people. Sin is when God is not central. I love this little expression there in verse 3. Jonah paid the fare. You might have a tendency to slip right past that. It's marvelous. Jonah paid the fare. Most of you are probably familiar enough with the story, especially since we've already read all of chapter 1, to know that Jonah never made it to where he was trying to go. And weird, the sailors didn't give him a refund on his ticket. Sorry. By one of my favorite old theologians, a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse, he puts it like this. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. But when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you're going, and he pays the fare. Now, that's good. When you try to do it your way, when you try to follow your own heart, you never get there, and you pay full price. When you follow the Lord's leading, you always get to where he's leading you, And he pays the fare. It's beautiful. And so because of Jonah's action in the wrong direction, verse 4 is forced. But then the Lord. God's going to get done what God's going to get done. Jonah is the antagonist. This pious, graceless prophet is still having to deal with a gracious, sovereign God. But the Lord hurled a great wind. This is such active language. I want you to not just hear this as a Bible story. I want you to be there. Can you smell the salt wind? Can you smell the, and feel the, the, the wind and the water hitting you in the face? I've never sailed in a sailboat through a hurricane. I would assume that's bad. That's kind of what's happening here. This is as dramatic and as, as fatal as it can possibly be. The Lord hurled a great wind. He didn't just sort of go, No, he hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. It's interesting. Maybe it's sunny and bright on the docks as Jonah boards that ship, and maybe he begins to whisper to himself or his soul bubbles up from within, I'm going to get away with this. It's nice and clear day. The sea is like glass. It's going to be just fine. And the Lord hurled a mighty wind at him. Where are you going to go that's not in God's presence? Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid. Now, you have to kind of pay attention. You're going to get three different times that the mariners, these sailors, their fear continues to mount. Three different times they get afraid, and then they're very afraid, and then they're so exceedingly afraid. These mariners, they represent the Gentiles. They are the nations. We don't know exactly their nationalities. More than likely, they are Phoenician because it's sailing from Joppa, which was very near to Phoenicia, and they're going to Tarshish, which is a Phoenician settlement just past Gibraltar on the Atlantic Ocean on the west coast of Spain. So we would think they're Phoenicians. They are pagans. They are Gentiles. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. You get it? They've done everything they know to do, and it's not enough. You've been there? And so what do you do? You cry out to the thing that you claim is at the center of your life, but really isn't. They cry out to their God. You have to remember that these are pagans. These are Phoenicians. They're not Greeks. It wasn't until the Greeks that they began to change the whole idea of gods. The Greeks gave us this mythology where the gods were more uh, like humanoids. Zeus has a face and a personality and a birthmark and a cranky attitude, and so does Athena, and so does Hera, and so does Aphrodite. But in paganism, 
the gods were more like representatives of nature. You had to do a thing to get rain to fertilize your crops. You had to do a thing so that uh, the, the, uh, the forces of nature would give you a childbirth. It was all appeasing them to get what you wanted and not making them mad so that you could get what you want. So they're saying something is wrong. The, the gods of nature are furious in sending us this storm. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Last-ditch effort. You might remember when Paul in the book of Acts is in a shipwreck. They throw all the stuff over. This is their livelihood. This is the whole reason they're setting sail to begin with is for this stuff to be transported. They get rid of it. They're that afraid. They're going to lose a year's worth of salary, if not more. But they're trying to make the ship nimble enough to be controlled. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, he's not just taking a cat nap. The text is a little bit weird. It's kind of technical. It's the same word used for sleep that we really only see back in Genesis when Adam is in such a deep sleep that God removes a rib. I've, I've taken an Ambien before, and still, even on Ambien, if someone tries to take a rib cage, we're having fists, okay? It's the same kind of sleep that Abram is described as being when God cuts covenant with him in Genesis 15. A dreadful, dark, trance-like sleep falls over him. It's that kind of a sleep. The sense is that Jonah has gone below in shame. He knows what's going on, and so he's either somehow self-medicated himself to a deep, dark trance, or God's put him under. Because Jonah is running so hard from God, that the presence of God, the face of God, that the life is draining from him. Have you been there? I can tell you the street in the city I was standing on when I had run from God so intentionally that I was a zombie, walking around lifeless, pointless, purposeless, directionless, like in a deep trance. Oh, moving about, but not alive. Jonah is asleep in the, bolt, in the hold of the ship. And yes, can I remind you yet again, Jonah is intended to represent the nation of Israel. And so that should call to us and remind those of us on this side of the New Testament of another person who's asleep in the bow of a ship where the sailors are freaking out going, what's happening? Why are you asleep during the storm? And they wake up Jesus in the gospel accounts. Except that Jesus is the creator of the storm. And he's in the boat with them. And so he calms it. But when you're running from this God and you're in the boat alone and without your God, things get violent in a hurry. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. And I love this line, perhaps the God will give a thought to us. What's that mean? We're screaming and crying to our gods and they don't care or they're not really there. Maybe yours is. Perhaps he'll give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. You know you're desperate when you're on the deck of a sailboat in a hurricane and you pull out the dice, right? Like, I don't know how sturdy you can get, but they're like, we got to do something. So they decided to cast lots to figure out who's responsible for this so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell, just so happened to fall to Jonah. Man throws the dice, God makes the spots come out on top. Proverbs says he is behind all of those decisions. They said to him, all this battery of questions, they just barrage him. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And what is the square root of a moose? I mean, they just keep going. Whatever it takes. What is happening? We're going to die. Don't you care? And verse 9 is the confession. Oh, it's beautiful. And it's convicting. Listen to what he says. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh. I have an awestruck wonder for Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea where we presently are and don't want to be, and the dry land where we would love to be. That's my God. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear God. And watch what the text says. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. They were already afraid. Now they're more afraid. Why? What changed? They had heard about the God of Israel. You gotta remember, there's no internets, there's no TikToks back then. These are sailors 
They're mariners. They're traveling all around the Mediterranean. It's only 760 BC or so. They would have heard the stories about David and Goliath. They would have heard the stories about the Exodus and how God brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt and the plagues that were poured out. They would have heard all the different stories of things that were happening as Joshua comes into the land and he crosses the Jordan at flood stage, how the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. They would have known all about this God. And they were more afraid. What? Have you done to that God? What's really fascinating to me in verse 9, when Jonah confesses, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know what he leaves out? They ask him his occupation. It's interesting. He doesn't say, oh, and I happen to be a prophet. I'm a missionary to the Gentiles. I'm supposed to tell you about God. Well, where's that been, Jack? He neglects his responsibilities because he disdains them. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? They're not asking him to repeat himself. It's like when your kid does the thing and you go, what have you done? What were you thinking? Jonah, may I remind you, representative of the nation of Israel, is unrepentant, hardens his heart. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them already. He'd already rehearsed the story. It didn't really matter to them, but now it absolutely does. Verse 11, then they said to them, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Oh, so it was bad. Now it gets real bad. Now it's at this point. The text should say that Jonah said, guys, my bad, on me, I'm sorry. Give me a moment. Let me pray to my God. And let me repent of my own self-righteousness and my arrogance. Let me repent of my disdain for you uncircumcised Gentiles. If I ask forgiveness, he will grant it because God's grace is relentless. He will calm the storm and you will be saved. Nope, not what he does, not what he says. It's really a tragic situation, this Jonah. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He's making it about himself. By the way, can I be super clear? Jonah could have thrown himself into the sea all by himself at any point. But he wants to be confirmed in his biases and have them throw him in so that he'll be the victim. Mm. Nevertheless, these pagans rode hard the literal text is they, they were digging their oars deeper. They have a higher value of human life, these Gentiles, than this man, prophet, preacher of Israel does. They won't do it. They try to row even harder. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So it was really bad. Then it got way worse. Now it gets even worse again. Therefore, I love verse 14, they called out to Yahweh. They Pray the covenant-keeping name of Yahweh. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Forgive us, Father, for we know not what we do. But we know enough now to call on you. You must be the kind of God that will hear and that will heed and that will help. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. God hurled a wind. They hurled a prophet. And the sea ceased from its raging. Just glass immediately. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly. There's the third time we see them fear. They had an awestruck reverence, a wonder for Yahweh. Now, you're going to be able to ask these guys about this one day. Because they're kind of the, the, the protagonists of the entire chapter. They feared Yahweh exceedingly. That is worship language. And they offered a sacrifice on the deck of a ship. They broke something up and killed it, and they, this is a Jewish worship technique. They're not doing it in the way that they would do it as pagans. This is Jewish worship, and they're doing it to thank God for what he has done already, not trying to get him to do something for him, for them. And then lastly, they made a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. They nabar. They covenanted with Yahweh. It is the sailors who pray. It is the sailors who are converted, who are saved, not Jonah. Well, things get fishy, and the Lord appointed, because the Lord is the center of the, of the whole narrative, a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We'll pick that up next week. So how do we super quickly apply this? 
I want to give you four very, very quick principles so that Mike will stop pacing back there. I'm aware of the time. Four very quick principles so that we can apply this and walk out of here with something. Number one goes like this. Self-righteousness is sin. I know, we all know that, but the piercing reality is it really does affect all of us. In fact, we might even say that it's the heart of the first sin, the sin of grasping for the throne of God and convincing yourself and everyone else around that you deserve it. This is what made Jesus the angriest was when the Pharisees tried to demonstrate their self-righteousness and their disdain for everybody else they deemed to be beneath them. But nobody deserves salvation less or more than you or me. And yet we all carry a flicker of disdain for this population or that, somehow believing the sin of our hearts that we are better than some other group or person. And so we move God from the center. Sin is when God is not central. Secondly, God is sovereign. God gets it done, even when his will is opposed. God had proclaimed judgment on the people of Nineveh and directed Jonah to preach to them so that they would repent. As we walk through this little book over the next three weeks, you're going to see that he does. And before he can even say repent, they do. It's astonishing. They do. God gets it done. But in Jonah's disobedience, he doesn't get to be a part of the sailor's conversion. He's there in Nineveh, and he sees them repent, and he gets to enjoy and experience that. But in his disobedience, he doesn't get to see the sailors be converted. He's three days in the fish while they're rejoicing and praising. Jonah is becoming his own sushi, and they're worshiping God. That can happen. Third, disobedience always hurts others. Disobedience always hurts others. To put it another way, sin never works out and sin splatters. To put it yet another way, no path of disobedience is ever blessed. We are the people of God. We are Christians and we tend to assume that all the problems in the world are caused by them who are out there and all their sin. And to be sure, there's a lot of that. But this passage always also shines a laser that sometimes hardships in the world can be caused by the people of God centering their lives on something other than God. And he'll stop at nothing to reorient the people he loves, even if that means placing the whole world in peril. So yes, disobedience is a problem. Fourthly, we'll finish, God's mercy extends to all peoples. God loves people, even the ones that we don't, even the ones we don't want to love. It's always been the heart of God to reach the nations, not just one or two, the whole world. That was his plan with Adam and Eve in the garden. Go subdue the whole world. It was his plan with Abram. You will be a blessing to all the nations. It was his plan with Israel. Be a light into the world. It was his plan by sending his own son to take into and onto himself all the pagan idolatry, all the rigid religious self-righteousness onto himself to go down, down, down. Three days and three nights in the belly of death. Sin is when God is not central. Jesus is true Israel, a better Israel. Jesus paid the fare. We will get where we're going, and until we do, we get to encounter, or sorry, encourage and admonish one another to maintain God at our center. Let me pray for us. We will finally be dismissed. We'll make way for our next service. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the morning. Thanks for the opportunity to be in your word in this place together. We do pray that you would continue to pursue those who are outside your covenant kingdom, and you would encourage those that are. Would you give us wisdom and a way forward as we go out into the world as your church? We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.